for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. The teaching text today is from John chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five colored colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned what he had been, how long he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You can take a seat. You can just put on the first row. I gave you a nice short one this morning, didn't I, Sam? All right, great job. Well, last week we we began to look at this story in John chapter 5. This is probably the third time I've preached on this this text in a concentrated way in the last five years or so. And it's one that I just really love. And I love and I'm so struck by Jesus' question to the man, do you want to be well? Jesus wanted to restore not only this man's physical capabilities, but his dignity and his authority as a person and his authority as a person made in the image of God. Okay, I didn't warn you, but I'm going to need six helpers for like 60 seconds. So Jason and Sam, will you guys help me real quick? Hunter, will you help me real quick? If I know your names and you sit at the sides, you're probably going to be in trouble. Uh, So Malachi, Carter, and Zach, will you guys help me for just a sec real quick? I promise it'll be 60 to 90 seconds. That's going to be it. Okay, Hunter, you're first, so why don't you come up here? And you are going to hold, stand at the top here. Hunter, you are the problem. This jinx Trojan right here, anxiety. Okay, and Sam, why don't you face everybody this direction? Jason, you face that way. Malachi, let's have you come up top. Okay, you get vision. Move a little bit to the side here. Carter will make you passionate, and you get baby steps, Zach. Okay, let's make a nice little triangle here. Okay, so I put these up last week. 
Um, and, and we talked about there, the text illuminates for us there, there are different ways of relating to the world. The man related to the world through the orientation of a victim. A, a victim sees in the world problems everywhere. They're bent toward the world. It's like I said last week, if your only tool is a hammer, all the world's a nail. A, people who, a person who relates to the world through a victim's orientation always sees problems. And, and that orientation toward problems affects their inner state. Their inner state looks a lot like anxiety. And that affects the way that they behave in the world. It looks like, um, uh, what does it say again, Jason, there? Okay, fight, flight, or freeze. And this way of living perpetuates itself. Jesus wanted to restore this man from being a victim to being the image bearer that he is. An image bearer relates to the world differently. Instead of just seeing problems, they see vision. They see the kind of life that God is inviting them into. And looking for what God is doing, looking for God to fund their imagination with the good thing he wants to do, fills that person with passion. And that passion leads them to take some kind of baby steps toward that preferred future. The question that we need to ask in moving from a victim toward an image bearer, a creator, a co-creator is, what is it that you want? What do you want? What is that vision that's populating your imagination? And one of the things that we're going to look at today is that there are forces that shape our wants, that inform and sometimes even pollute our vision and hinder our ability to move forward as image bearers in the world. Good job. Did you guys give them a round of applause? Nice and sweet. Okay. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. So within Judaism at the time, there were differing opinions about how to be well. We see a couple of these in the text that's here. The man sitting at the well subscribed to one of these that I'm just calling superstition. This vision he had for being well was, if I get into the pool, if I'm the first one after the angel supposedly stirs it, then I'm going to get well. Superstition in this case is like a spirituality that's not directly grounded in God's revelation. It's not directly based on God's commands. In our time, a superstitious approach to being well might, might be like taking a little too seriously personality assessments giving them too much of an authoritative, like an author, an authoritative role in your life, telling you who you are and how you're meant to engage in the world. A superstitious way of engaging the world might be like consulting uh, your horoscope or the language that so many people are using nowadays about trying to find yourself. You're right here. I mean, what are you looking for? This is a superstitious approach to life. I'm not superstitious. I'm just a little bit stitious. At the same time, we see in John chapter 5 that the Jewish leaders have a competing vision for how to be well. I'm going to just call this tradition. For the Jewish leaders, they were convinced that if we do a really, really good job of obeying not only the Mosaic law, but also their commentary on it, then Messiah would finally be pleased with them enough to come and kick out the Romans and usher in the Messianic age. They thought this was the sure way. But because their vision hinged on uh, the, the, their tradition, their Sabbath laws, they were blind to the reality that Messiah was already here, and they'd overlooked, they were blind to the miracle that had happened in their midst. Jesus said this to them in the same chapter. He said, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me, and yet you refuse to come to me to have life. 
Now, I want you to note that in John chapter 5 here, the obstacles that are being put in front of the kingdom way of being well are coming from within the community of faith. They're coming from within Judaism. So the question I want us to explore this morning is what obstacles are the people of God putting before the kingdom way of being well in our time? If this came from within, where do we see these same obstacles in our time? From my perspective, there are three emerging churches that put their own unique obstacles in front of the kingdom way of being well, that are misaligned with what Jesus is trying to do in the world. Now, uh, I I may offend you this morning. That is not my intent. But I do intend to be an equal opportunity offender. So if you're offended now, wait, other people will be offended later. So uh, the first of these three emerging churches that I want to share this morning, I'm calling the Nationalist Church. When I say the Nationalist Church, I mean those brothers and sisters in Christ who count political victories, I would say particularly of the right, as victories for the kingdom of God. Now, if you can imagine how the moon orbits the earth, what are each of these emerging churches orbiting? I would say for the Nationalist Church, they're orbiting the United States of America. That's their focus. And these folks are trying to operate out of good faith. It is good to love one's country, but it is possible to love one's country too much and to get your loves out of order. The Nationalist Church too frequently compromises Christian means By that I mean things like humility and nonviolence and truth-telling. I could go on. For what they deem to be Christian ends, things like legislative victories. The Nationalist Church, I would say along with the religious leaders in John chapter 5 here, fail to see that God is not after reclaiming one single nation. Actually, his ambitions are much greater than that. You could go to Jesus' conversation with the the Samaritan woman at the well. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. She's asking, which land is the holy land? Which is the holy place? Jesus said something is coming that's going to supersede geography or encompass all of the geography of the earth. She said, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation comes from the Jews. And yet a time is coming, says Jesus, and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. The Nationalist Church overlooks the possibility that we may gain the world or gain a country and yet in the process lose our souls. Second emerging church that I want to profile this morning, I'm calling the humanist church. And when I say the humanist church, I mean those brothers and sisters in Christ who believe they're doing God's work by pursuing their vision of justice in society. And many of these folks are acting in good faith because they see things like poverty, Or they see marginalized people and they remember rightly that God cares for those people. But like the nationalist Christians, they pursue Christian ends, things like welcoming people into God's family, while overlooking Christian means. 
And the problem is, in the, the humanist church, the problem is that the vision of justice that they're pursuing orbits around the primacy and the sovereignty of the self. And it's a vision of justice that's often untethered and unguided by God's revelation for human flourishing as it's brought to us in the scriptures. And when the self is at the center, the whole thing implodes. The humanist church too often mischaracterizes God's loving guidance for us in the scriptures as an antiquated and repressive ideology rather than the merciful means and message of redemption that it is. And it leaves little room for the possibility of personal sin. They don't know what to do with a Jesus who says things like he did at the end of this passage in John chapter 5 when he's talking with the man who had been healed after a 38-year ailment. Jesus found him and said, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The humanist church doesn't know what to do with a Jesus like this. The nationalist church, the humanist church, and then finally I want to talk about what I'm calling the therapeutic church. Now don't hear what I'm not saying. I am a fan of therapy and I've paid a lot of therapists a lot of money over the years. I'm not talking about therapy, I'm talking about the therapeutic church. And these brothers and sisters in Christ rightly want to reach people who are largely not interested in God or church. So they're trying to make church relatable or practical or palatable by catering to the felt needs of largely the anxious middle class. But instead of challenging the idols of an upwardly mobile life, they often treat God, they relegate, relegate him to being like our divine benefactor or cheerleader. If the, the nationalist church is orbiting around the, the country and the humanist church is orbiting around the primacy and the sovereignty of the self, the therapeutic church is orbiting around the comfort and the feelings of well-being among its parishioners. Joining in the subcultures, the therapeutic church's subcultures' endemic idolatries by making churches into brands and pastors into celebrities. The therapeutic church is uncomfortable with quiet and insists on being loud all the time. It's obsessed with being seen and doesn't know what to do with this rich secret life that Jesus calls us to cultivate in the Sermon on the Mount. And has a little space for suffering or cross-carrying or the kind of truth-telling that undermines the self-obsession that's endemic to our culture. They struggle with the Jesus who calls them to lay it all down like he did with the rich young ruler, Gospel of Mark. Jesus looked at him and loved him, and he said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. And the man walked away sad. The nationalist church, the, the humanist church, and the therapeutic church each revolve around a center of gravity that's different than the Lord Jesus and equally attach secondary agendas to the kingdom way of being well that distracts us from the primary and perennial invitation of Jesus to come and follow me and to become his apprentices. Each of these come from within the community of faith. But there are also forces on the outside of the community of faith that desire to distract 
and to, to guide differently and to pollute our wants, our vision, the things that take us away from a Matthew 6.33 kind of life. Okay, you ready to lighten up a little bit? Okay, in this section, I'm going to ruin one of your children's favorite movies, and I'm going to need your help to do it, okay? <clears throat> okay, so help me with this. Kilgore's going to be able to help me with this, I know. Everything is awesome. Everything is... <laughs> we can stop there. We'll call it there. Okay, if you don't know that song, Everything is Awesome, it's probably ruining the lives of elementary school teachers somewhere. Everything is awesome. It's like the theme song to the Lego movie, which is a whole, you know, like they're really, really fun, entertaining movies. Uh, but Everything is Awesome is the earworm song from the Lego movie. And I've been thinking about this sermon for a couple of months, and I watched the Lego movie on an airplane because it's just so fun. And I, I noticed... <laughs> I don't even know why that's funny. I was considering the role that the song played in the film. Okay, think about it if you've seen it. Uh, in the world of the Lego movie, there's an orderly society run by President Business, who is secretly known, his true identity is Lord Business. And I got this from a fan page, indulge me. <laughs> hang with me, hang with me. Lord Business is a control freak who detests seeing anything out of place. He cannot stand anything that even slightly deviates from his idea of perfection, so he creates walls between each section of the Lego world to keep all of the pieces in what he believed to be their rightful places and prevent them from mingling with each other in any way not allowed by his instructions. Since he publicly poses as president business, most inhabitants of the land of Lego have no idea how evil he is. He's able to run the world completely and efficiently, though underneath the bright and cheery surface lies a dystopia, wherein those who refuse to follow president business instructions are at risk of being captured by his super-secret police and executed. So how does Lord Business, President Business, covertly control the masses? It's through the shows they watch, the music they listen to, everything is awesome, the ads that they see, and the things that are tolerated and prohibited in their little Lego world. All of these things reinforcing conformity to his vision while eliminating deviance from his, from his ideology without anybody noticing. Everything is awesome is really fun and positive and catchy, and it is also propaganda. Propaganda is the more or less systematic effort to manipulate others' beliefs, attitudes, or actions by means of symbols, words, gestures, banners, monuments, music, clothing, etc. Deliberateness and a relatively heavy emphasis on manipulation distinguish propaganda from casual conversation or the free and easy exchange of ideas. Propagandists have a specified goal or set of goals. To achieve these, they deliberately select facts, arguments, and displays of symbols and present them in ways they think will have the most effect. 
To maximize effect, they may omit or distort pertinent facts or simply lie, and they may try to divert the attention of the people they're trying to sway from everything but their own propaganda. Rod Dreher in his book, Live Not By Lies, said this. He said, propaganda helps change the world by creating a false impression of the way the world is. Unmasked for what it is, everything is awesome is a sinister ploy by Lord Business to control the masses. Back to the real world, Lord Business is attempting to do the same to us. To reinforce an ideology and to simultaneously eliminate dissenters. It's a woman named Bhatia Angar Sargon, who's an opinion editor for Newsweek. She's worked for Washington Post, the LA Times, New York Times, and I heard her say this at a conference. She said, every time you go on the internet and feel outrage, somebody just made a million dollars. The measuring stick for journalistic success these days is engagement. And engagement doesn't just mean people who like it. It means clicks and retweets and comments. My number one rule in navigating the internet is never read the comments section, by the way. The media has learned that the articles that get the most engagement and and hence generate the the highest ad sales appeal to people at their extremes. So it's actually become profitable for media companies to indulge the worst tendencies of their readers and viewers. The data science team of one flagship newspaper was realizing this, and so they asked their target audience, which was millennials who earn over $100,000, to rate how articles made them feel. And they learned that the more that these readers feel, the more likely they are to click on another article or another video or to click on one of the advertisements. And taking this data, they created a machine learning algorithm to predict how future articles would make people feel. And then they take that insight and they sell it to advertisers. So somebody comes and say, I want to sell, I want to give you $100,000 to advertise this product. They can ask, how do you want our readers to feel when they see your ad? Equally, on the right and on the left, they have monetized our emotions, making it big time while pushing all of us to the extremes, polarizing us into tribes that hate each other. Our worldview, our ability to have this vision is being influenced by people often without our knowledge or our permission. Our worldview, our wants, and our values are being shaped and polluted far more than we realize by the media that we consume. Drea says the masters of data aren't simply trying to figure out what you like. They're not at work making, they're now at work making you like what they want you to like without the manipulation being detected. But not only is it the ideologies of, of progressive consumerism or the political right or the left, There's actually a campaign of disinformation and subterfuge being waged against each of us by our enemy. Paul in Ephesians says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 
We need to be aware there are rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world, spiritual forces of evil at work against us. The enemy, according to 2 Corinthians 11, masquerades as an angel of light. The evil is cloaked in a veil of virtue. And each of us, in our complicated world in which we live, need to be on our guard from those forces within the community of faith and on the outside of the community of the faith that are distracting us from the invitation of Jesus and the kingdom way of being well. Forces that want to colonize our minds and our hearts and our imaginations with ideologies whose origin is not from above. How can you determine what wisdom comes from above? James chapter 3. The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. God's wisdom is always going to beckon us into greater holiness. The wisdom that comes from God is first of all pure. And then it's not combative, but it's peace-loving. It's considerate, thinking about the effect on others. The wisdom that comes from God is submissive. It's full of mercy, and it's full of good fruit. How can you tell if it's a good tree? Look for good fruit. The wisdom that comes from above is impartial, and it's sincere. How do we begin to develop those discerning muscles, those discerning instincts, to help us judge right from wrong? To help us discern that which is pure and from above and that which is colonizing our minds and deviating us off of the kingdom way of being well. I want to offer you a couple of encouragements and challenges this morning. Most of you won't pay attention to these. I don't mean to insult. But probably most, most people will not enact these. But you could. And you should. The first one I want to challenge you with is to ruthlessly eliminate screens from your life. There's, you know, the story, uh, oh, what's the book? Everybody at, at this point's now read it. John Mark Comer, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Yeah, this, uh, as soon as I heard the title, I remembered the story behind it, that John Ortberg, who uh, was, was moving to uh, Willow Creek to be a teaching pastor, and he wrote to Dallas Willard this great Apprentice of Jesus and great writers inspired so many. And, and Ortberg is on the phone with Willard and, and he says, okay, I need some advice for how to keep my soul well in a megachurch context. And Willard says, ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And Ortberg writes it down. It's like, okay, what else? And Willard says, that's it. <laughs> ruthlessly eliminate screens from your life. Here's a reference four of you will get. Toad the Wet Sprocket was this band in the 90s. They had a song called Throw It All Away. They have this great line. A teacher named Jimmy Doyle taught it to me. Burn your TV in your yard. Gather around it with your friends. Warm your hands upon the fire and start again. Ruthlessly eliminate screens from your life. I mean to literally decentralize the role of screens in your homes. We usually build our living rooms around our televisions. Go home and take it down and put it in a closet. Try to make your smartphone as stupid as it can possibly get. 
quit social media. Okay. Some of you are not going to like me after this. I don't care. We have a, we, there are like 30 or 40 kids born in our church this year. And we have a lot of parents of young children. And parents of young children, if you were to ask me for one piece of advice about raising your children in our, in our world as it is, here, here's what it would be. Don't let your kids near a screen. From the time they're really little, try to play a game. Let's see how long we can go without them knowing it exists. Don't let your kids near a screen. Don't let them play with your phone. Don't give them an iPad. Don't hire TV as your babysitter. Uh, don't let them game. Uh, all of us who grew up playing Oregon Trail on those old Macs <laughs> and who spent our early high school years doing AOL Instant Messenger know that this stuff is crack. We're introducing it to our kids way too early. I know that it's wise not to do these things but because I struggle to employ these boundaries in my own life, and I bet every single one of you say the same thing. So ruthlessly eliminate screens from your life. Get them out of the hands of your children. Send them out to play in the dirt. Help them to fall in love with books and bikes and sunshine and trees and tag and hide and seek. I believe that the long-term effects of a childhood of screens is not pure or peace-loving or considerate or submissive, and I do not believe that it bears long-term fruit. Now, the old, there are kids in the room who are already moaning <laughs> over that advice. I hear you, Fred. May your parents listen to me. Now, the older your kids, the more difficult this is going to be, but you still got rid of the pacifier at a certain point. It's like getting rid of the pacifier all over again. Now, Emily and I did this, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago, so forgive me for making myself the example of this. But we realized when we had little kids, that we'd get home from work, we're tired, we eat, we bathe children, we read to children, we jamie children, we get them to sleep, we clean the house, it's 9 o'clock, we're exhausted, we watch an hour of TV, an hour and a half of TV, we don't talk to each other, we wake up late because we go to bed too late, and we do this for a really long time. Just recognizing this is not leading to the kind of fruitful life that we want. TV is, is like, it's, it's, the, it's the drug that I really want, but it's not, it doesn't give me the lift that I really need. Good things began to happen in our life when we took the TV out of our living room and we put it in our closet. And we haven't put it back. Now, I struggle with other screens. I have smaller rectangles that I still have to keep in line, but I'm telling you, ruthlessly eliminate screens from your life. Stand firm. Tell your kids the shows are going on a vacation. When are they getting back? I'm not really sure. I heard one person say, how do I know it's time that I should give my kid a smartphone? When, I, when can I give my kid a smartphone? And they said, when you're ready for their childhood to end. Ruthlessly eliminate screens from your life. The second thing I want to encourage and challenge you with is to become a student of history, to study how the church has navigated the world through different cultural contexts over 2,000 years. Smartphones are not the first way we've accessed media, visual media or print media over the history of the church. Read books like The Patient Ferment of the Early Church or Read Bullies and Saints by John Dixon. Study how propaganda works and learn to discern how commercials and songs and movies 
are very actively shaping you. Even read books, novels like 1984 or Brave New World and compare and contrast which one you think seems more like our reality. And in becoming a student of history, absolutely refuse to believe, refuse to let them convince you that 2 plus 2 equals 5. And then the third thing I want to challenge you with is to go on a gospel cleanse. So I want you to calculate. Your phone probably, if you have an iPhone, your phone probably did this for you today. Many of you probably got a report, a screen time report this morning, and it told you, and then you blushed, how much time you spent on your device on average. So I want you to think about, this is like great compounding interest too. You know, financial planners will say, look, if you spend like $5.74 on Starbucks every morning, imagine that you invested that amount every day, every week into like a growth stock, you know, like a Roth IRA or something, and look what that would be over 40 years. Man, we're a millionaire. Take the time that you normally spend on your devices, especially mindlessly on your devices, and use that time instead to read the Gospels. Just the words of, just those four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. See how far you can get in a week, and then I literally suggest you do that and then do the same thing again for another week. I think that what you'll see, what you'll find as you do this, not only eliminating screens, but getting a really good dose of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, is that Jesus is more brilliant and good and mystifying and magnetic than you remembered. And that your screen-centered world is more empty and deformational than you even realized. My hope, friends, is that we would be a community of people who have the ability to discern lies and just run to feast on the truth. And to have no greater delight than to live in the truth. That we would become a community of truth tellers. That would be a community that's nourished on the pure word of God. That's learning as apprentices of Jesus how to be well in a crooked and a warped generation. But the days are over of living like everyone else and and going to church a couple of Sundays a month and hoping that we and our children turn out different. Those days are behind us. Andy Crouch in his book, The Tech Wise Family, which is my favorite book on managing tech and my favorite book on family, said, I'm not telling you that you need to go and be Amish, but I am telling you that you need to be almost, almost Amish. And to be a community that can sniff out lies and who delights in the truth is going to require a different kind of shape and order and rhythm to our lives. It's going to require us to manage those little rectangles in our lives with due diligence. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. May the light of the face of the Lord Jesus Christ shine brightly on us. We turn our eyes on Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and may the things of earth seem strangely clear in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, as, as part of your church, I repent of putting obstacles in the way of the kingdom way of being well. I repent and I apologize at time for, for soapboxing and diatribing in ways that are not leading people to respond to the simple invitation of come and follow me. I pray that you would cleanse and purge your church from the idolatry of nationalism. I pray that you would cleanse and pur purify your church from visions of justice that are not anchored in your vision of shalom, that are not guided by your scriptures. And I pray that you would cleanse and purify your church uh, from, from treating you as just our divine butler or here to put your rubber stamp on whatever it is that we want to do. Forgive, it, forgive us for feeling like, for being like the rich young ruler who thinks he can have it all and follow you. But may the Spirit of Jesus Christ speak to our hearts again and invite us to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and follow you. May we learn from you and find in you the life that is truly life. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would purge and cleanse our minds from lies of the enemy, from tactics from, of, of marketers and people who do not have wisdom from above to try to, to convince us to think and believe in ways that are out of alignment with, with what you say is good. May our children outpace us and being children of the truth. And may they even point out in us areas in which we've believed lies or we've let our defenses be down. Lord, may the fruit of this preaching be the absence of anxiety. May the fruit of our obedience be joy in the Holy Spirit. May the fruit of our obedience be intimacy with the Lord Jesus. And may the same Jesus come and be with us now at the table. So I pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.